Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey friends, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to another edition of the MyFit Podcast. And this week, I have a special episode for you. And although I might say that a lot, this one is a particularly special one because I brought in a co-host to help me interview this guest. And I'll get to that story in a moment. This week on the show, I chat with former FBI top hostage negotiator, Chris Voss. Chris is one of the preeminent practitioners and professors of negotiation skills in the entire world. He's the founder and principal of the Black Swan Group, a consulting firm that provides training and advises Fortune 500 companies through complex negotiations. Chris currently teaches at the University of Southern California and also Georgetown University. Chris Voss is also the co-author of the best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Chris is an incredibly talented individual who has years of experience at the highest level making pressure-filled negotiations with some of the biggest threats around the world. He has now taken what he's learned from the FBI and wants to share it with anybody who is interested in learning how to become a master of negotiation. Okay, so story time. About a month or two ago, I got a hold of Chris and his team at the Black Swan Group, and they were interested in bringing Chris on the MyFit podcast. I was very excited for the opportunity, and I ended up calling my dad to tell him Chris Voss was going to be a guest on the show. It didn't take long for him to jump out of his seat, almost drop his phone in excitement that a person that he looks up to, follows, has read his book, uh, taken his courses and classes, was going to be talking to me on the show. So long story short, over the next couple of weeks, my dad sent over a couple of questions uh, and I could tell he was eager to get into the show and maybe even be a part of it. So I asked him if he wanted to become a co-host and we could kind of take team the show together. And it was super fun to share that moment with him. Uh, for those that haven't met my dad, uh, we talked a, a couple of times on the show about him, but my dad is a motivational speaker and also an author, loves everything to do with sales, negotiating, uh, everything basically that Chris Voss stands for, uh, my dad follows closely. So this is a fun episode for us to share together. We went back and forth asking questions uh, and hopefully we can bring kind of a, a breath of fresh air so it's not always just me talking. So a special episode today, having my dad co-host with me. I hope you guys enjoy it. Some of the topics we got into were first, how do you prepare to be for in, involved in the FBI hostage team? Chris first was a cop in KCMO, and we were curious on what was it like being a cop and how do you transition from a cop to the FBI and also into the hostage world? After that, we talked about the three components of communication and how that plays a role when you're communicating with people that are either in person or on the phone around the world. After that, we talked about the difference between sympathy and empathy. Then we discussed labeling emotions and how that brings the emotion down and we can start labeling it. Then we talked about tactical empathy and how Chris uses that in high pressure negotiation. 
negotiations. Then we talked about, we ended up talking at the end about no is better than yes. This is a total shift in mindset when it comes to sales, getting what you want. Most times we're taught and we see whether it's a car sales or anything, just very basic level that we want our audience and our opponents or our counterpart to say yes more often. Chris actually flips that and explains why no is better than yes. If you guys are interested in Chris's book, you can check it out on Barnes and Noble, Target, basically anywhere you can get books. Uh, it's a very popular one. It's called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. He's got it on Audible as well. You can also take his master course, which is online. I've attached it to this episode. You can check the link below. Hope you guys enjoy it. We mix it up a little bit, bringing my dad in. We have another co-host. Uh, this is just kind of a fun conversation to understand how can we do a better job at getting what we want, negotiating with people and understanding a little bit more about empathy. If you guys enjoy the show, as always, please share it on your Instagram. I love seeing that pop up on your story. It really makes my day. I would also love to hear what you got out of it, what you will take into your next negotiation. And don't forget, if you guys want to save 15% off at Legends for some new workout apparel, use code MYFIT215 at checkout. That's M-I-F-I-T-215 at checkout to receive 15% off. All right, without further ado, let's get to this episode with Mr. Chris Voss. Let's go. Chris Voss, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, man. I am so excited for this conversation. I've been researching you, watching your stuff for a long time, and it's just so cool that we can be across the screen today. So thank you for being on the show. Got my old man here to be a part of it as well. Uh, we're just excited for the opportunity. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So FBI negotiator, it's a huge title, somebody that you don't, you don't run into a lot of those people in your lifetime. I think in order for us to lay the foundation, Chris, for our listeners to understand who you are, uh, let's talk a little bit about how did you get there? I know that you were a KCMO cop, and I'm curious on how did that prepare you for being in the FBI and being an FBI negotiator at such a high elite level? Yeah, well, KCMO, Kansas City, Missouri. That's right. I, I enjoyed my time there. Good, good, good town, good police department. Yeah, um, you know, uh, to be, uh, I was in uniform patrol there for three years, and, and to be there, that's kind of like you're a consultant, so to speak. I mean, uh, oh, and a consultant, a great consultant, a great negotiator, ability to work well on your own, also work in a team, depend upon the circumstances, read the situation, and try to bring it to a conclusion that won't reoccur which, you know, application of experience and emotional intelligence and be willing to learn. So, I, you know, I think all the stuff that I did along the way, um, my whole career, uh, even how my parents raised me. I mean, I grew up in an entrepreneurial environment. My dad was a figure it out kind of guy. Here's the task. Go figure it out. Let me know when it's done. <laughs> so, which is a lot of life, you know, but um, nobody's automatically born with these skills. It's if you enjoy figuring things out um, and then you adapt. Life, life is a learning experience also, which sounds like a cliche, but where do you learn from? You learn from some from experience. You learn some from learning. I mean, you guys are talking to me about uh, having read the book, um, my book or any other book. Any, if you're reading it to learn, you've got a competitive advantage. So it's, it's a good sign. Mm -hmm. I, and I, got, I decided I want to put in for the FBI, got into the FBI, ended up on the Joint Terrorist Task Force in New York City, was on a SWAT team, FBI Pittsburgh, before I got to New York, 
decided I wanted to try out for the Bureau's hostage rescue team, which is uh, FBI's version of the Navy SEALs, a lot of former SEALs and former Delta guys on the HRT. Re-injured my knee, like crisis response, which is really make a decision. You know, we got something going on now, I got to make a decision. And failing to make a decision is kind of the bane of human existence. John F. Kennedy had a uh, saying a long time ago about the risks and costs of comfortable inaction, which is failing to make a decision. And so I like crisis response. We had hostage negotiators. I didn't really know what they did. You know, it didn't sound that hard. How hard could it be? <laughs> I talk to people every day. Uh, like most things that look easy, sales, customer relationships, just getting along with people. You know, the, the, somebody who gets along really well with people and make it look easy, but it's, it's complicated. You got to learn about people. You got to respect them. That's kind of how I ended up as a hostage negotiator. One of the things that was really cool for me is to watch you do the point with the index finger, thumb up on the other. And <laughs> who wouldn't mind, can you walk the listeners through this? Because it really amplifies what you're saying, where it appears easy, yet there's some complexity to it. And are you willing to put yourself through that awkwardness to, to master? So if you can just imagine our listeners are out there, they're either uh, sitting there listening to you, if they're driving, they shouldn't be doing this, but just walk us through that. Yeah, well, it's a simple exercise that illustrates a lot of points simultaneously. So if I'm speaking to people, I'll say, you know, put, put your left thumb up, put your right forefinger out. And uh, sometimes, let me get it on cam here. Sometimes even doing that, people, you know, they got to look at their hand real hard <laughs> to get it, uh, you know, just to do that. And then I say, now switch. And let me get, yeah, stay on camera here. And, uh, you know, that, why can I do that easily and quickly and go back and forth? Only because I've practiced. Now, the first time that somebody tries that, they're like, you can, you can see like their head, uh, they feel like their head's exploding. But in point of fact, the cool thing about that is the first time somebody tries that, they're actually running electrical current through a neural synaptic connection. And the more awkward it feels the first time you do that, you're actually creating a new neural synaptic connection. And which is cool because as a side note, it's great for brain health. It's good for your brain you're doing stuff intentionally for your neurosynaptic connections after age 25 is really important for thinking, learning, neuroplasticity, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of stuff. Then when we teach people that, like if I teach you a negotiation skill, the first time I ask you to do it, it's going to feel equal, equally awkward. That awkward feeling the first time you tried to, you know, do the the switch from the thumb to the forefinger. Now, that stops most adults from learning a new skill. Now, at 25 is a great dividing line, roughly, give or take one a year or two, either direction. By and large, until you're about 25, everything is awkward. Everything you learn is awkward. From about adolescence to 25, you're used to feeling awkward and you're not thrown off by it. And so it's, you know, okay, this is awkward. Everything is awkward. But at about your mid-20s on, you start figuring stuff out. And you, you assume that you shouldn't be awkward anymore. So people will stop themselves from learning a new skill because it felt awkward. Now, simultaneously, what they're showing us, Daniel Coyle showed it in the, the talent code. 
neuroscientists are coming up with this constantly. The awkward feeling is actually an indicator of accelerated learning. So if you're trying something and you don't feel awkward, you're learning at an average pace at best. You should seek out the awkward feeling because it accelerates your learning. It's a mechanism to learn faster than people around you. All of that from the stupid little exercise between <laughs> the thumbs and the fingers. I'm sorry. It took me way too long. And I knew we were doing this interview today. And for the last three days, I've been, and my wife is like, what are you doing? I go, try this. And she's an eighth grade teacher. And she <laughs> picked it up, of course, a lot faster than I did. Not much of a surprise. But that awkwardness that you talk about, I think your, your book has taken these strategies and trimmed down the awkwardness in communication and connection. And there's this awkwardness, Chris, when we are meeting someone for the first time, we take right. the stage. There's a, a business right. negotiation or a hostage negotiation. So right. walk me through the, the key pieces of that, that first seven seconds that, that you talk about. Uh, Lou Holtz says that people are wondering a couple things about you. Do you, can I trust you? Do you know what right. you're talking about? Do you care about me? But I think you would add a, another question, and that is, how are you going to help me? So walk us through the, the keys to that, that great first impression. You know, the great, great first impression, important issue. And then, then also what's really uh, counterintuitive, what most people think is the uh, first impression is your second most important impression. Second. Now, it's an important impression. But the most important impression is the last impression. The lasting, last impression is the lasting impression. You know, like when I got trained as a speaker, I, you know, I, I joined National Speakers Association, went through their academy, you know, just because I knew it from being a hostage negotiator, just because speaking looked easy didn't mean that I could do it because I was a negotiator. So I went out and studied it. And they taught us that you should have two jokes that are relevant to your topic. And your opening joke should be your second funniest joke. And the last the very last thing should be the funniest thing that you say. Uh, humor is an emotional intelligence mechanism. It's a memory encoder. You know, you don't tell jokes that don't have anything to do with your, your, your topic it, because you're making a point that's not, that's off topic. It doesn't do you any good. But you asked me about the first impression, which is important. And it's the second most important impression. Now, first impression, what are people looking for? Trust and competence, not confidence. And people are seduced by wanting to appear confident for a variety of reasons. And I use the word seduced intentionally because confidence is sexy. So, you know, <laughs> if you're single and you're looking for, you know, a great connection, a lifetime relationship, a significant other, you're going to find a confident human being very sexy. And people are drawn to that. But the real problem with confidence business is we all know plenty of confident people that don't know what they're talking about. And they have, they learn that they can get a great first impression with confidence and then it'll go nowhere. Like I got an ex-girlfriend used to like to say, I may not always be right, but I'm never in doubt. Well, that's somebody who's wrong a lot, but she comes <laughs> up by being confident. So what's a two millimeter shift to comp competence? Well, would you rather have a confident plumber or a competent plumber? Mm -hmm. 
You know, so you want somebody that knows what they're talking about and how do they, how do they, you can establish confidence and trust simultaneously. If you take out trust and put in the word predictability, then whatever professional you are, if you just describe what people should expect in what they're faced in the marketplace, you've now put predictability into a dark area for people, whatever you're doing for a living. If you're doing it for a living and you're talking to a potential client, you know more about the predictable nature of their challenges than they do. That's why you do it for a living. Start laying some of that out. And it would, and what might seem to be ridiculously obvious to you, like as a hostage negotiator working kidnappings in Haiti, I know that they settle on Friday or Saturday because Haitian kidnappers want a party on Saturday night, which in point of fact, kidnappers globally, if they're not as, you know, religious fanatics, they want to get paid because they want to party on Saturday night like everybody else does. I mean, that was a universal phenomenon that we found. And I'm working at kidnapping. If they want to get paid on Friday or Saturday, on Tuesday, they ain't settling the deal because they think they can get more. Try to get something done on Wall Street in New York City in August. It ain't happening because they're partying in the Hamptons. Try to get anybody in any business in the U.S. to get anything done for you after December 3rd. It ain't happening because they're all going to Christmas parties and they're planning on cutting up their bonuses at the end of the year and you're not going to get anything done until January. These human nature dynamics are everywhere. Whatever you do for a living, you know the pulse and the life cycle of your business. You begin to lay out the simplest things. I would tell people on Haiti kidnappings, look, this ain't going down on Tuesday. Not only that, they're going to make a bunch of vague threats that you don't really feel that worried about, and they're not going to really want to connect with you. And we get in a call with the bad guys on a Tuesday, and they go like, oh, you got to pay us. We want a million dollars. Oh, we're going to kill a hostage. And then they'd hang up, and they go like, wow. You said they were going to say that, and they did. To me, I've done it enough times, but I'm establishing trust by establishing predictability in the environment. Whatever you do for a living, the, the minute you begin to establish predictability in the environment for the person, the client, the customer that you're serving, you have instantaneous trust being built for something that simple. That's awesome advice, Chris. I want to get into a little bit of the communication side of things, with especially with hostage negotiations. We know that you know three, the three main parts of negotiation are seven percent is your words, thirty eight percent is tonality, and fifty five percent is body language. I love. I think you're the perfect person to talk to about this. If we were just to break those three down, I'm curious on what are some of the things that you've learned and you try to teach when it comes to the three parts of communication, knowing that sometimes you're on the phone, so you don't get to do the body language per se, but I'm sure it plays a role. So Chris, if we could start with your words, how do words play such a pivotal role in uh, hostage negotiation situations? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, what you really want to look for, because sometimes people want to argue over those percentages, 738 plus 55 equals 100. And you get some people bent out of shape. Like, you know, when I taught at Harvard, uh, I taught, I was on a teaching staff at Harvard Law School. I realized that's a sign of the apocalypse. A regular guy like me from Southeast Iowa <laughs> taught at Harvard at the law school. 
<laughs> but, we, you know, we had one of the instructors there go like, you know, I just don't think tone of voice is that important. It's just not that important. The words are so much more important than a tone of voice. And we'd all be like, Jesus, are you <laughs> listening to yourself? <laughs> Clearly, you're upset about this. <laughs> <laughs> but the real issue is when they're out of line. You know, when do the tone and the body language and the words, when are they out of line? Like when somebody says, I, you know, I don't care at all. Well, whatever your percentages are, your tone and your words are out of line. Yeah. Or if I say, wow, that was an insightful question. Or if I say, wow, that was an insightful question. You know, the tone and the words are out of line. So what do you, what do, you do with that um, in, a, in an interaction? Focus on the tone. Focus on the body language if you got it. If you're if you're on Zoom, uh, disadvantage of Zoom. You got less body language. Advantage of Zoom. People's body language is much more unguarded, especially if you got a group Zoom call. Like the the person who is not the primary spokesperson. You know, you will think that they are an epileptic the way that they react to some things that their team says. So the unguarded body language in Zoom is a strategic advantage for people that are looking for it. But again, your original question, what do I do? Do I focus on the words? Do I focus on the tone? Your tone is your starting place. You know, and there's a difference between people say yes or people that say Yes. Well, what's that tone tell you? You can say, look, I heard you say yes, but you sound like there's something else that's on your mind. Or I know a guy that got fired from a company because as a senior executive, he was talking to the company's largest investor, biggest holder of stock. And he was trying to signal to the, 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 this important person that there was a problem. And it, the investor said, listen, this is what I want to have done. This is, I think, is a, how we're going to handle this. And a senior executive said, okay. And he's really trying to signal hesitancy. But he's scared because this person is so important. So the guy on the other side of the table, he's focusing on words. You said, okay, we've agreed. Mm -hmm. And, he, and in focusing on the words, he moved forward that the senior executive agreed. When he found out later there was no agreement, the senior executive got fired. Mm. And I think that in business negotiations and customer-client interactions, that might be one of the biggest uh, miscommunications. When somebody says yes, mm. and you're looking for the word yes, and you go like, victory, I have a deal. And you run off with what the other person actually said was, yes. So when you're worried about other 738.55, what you should focus on, focus when the words and the tone of voice are out of line. And then gently just make an innocent, curious observation about the way they said it so that they don't feel backed into a corner. Chris, you're, you're a master at tonality. 
And as a speaker, that's what I tune into. And I love your quote that tonality comes from mastery and tonality is where expertise comes from. And just listening to you, you have this mesmerizing, kind of captivating cadence and tone. Is that something that you were taught? I know you said earlier, these things can be learned. Is, Is that taught or was it something that was kind of natural? It just, you have the capacity to just bring people's anxiety down. I, I just, you can sense it right away. Is that something that, or, or how do the rest of us, I guess, develop our, our tonality so that it is attractive to others? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I stumbled over by accident, really. I mean, I think when I, way back when in the, you know, in, in the dark ages, when I volunteered uh, for the suicide hotline, like my first call, I don't know why, but I was uncertain enough of what to do that I naturally use a tone of voice, which, you know, we now refer to in, in, in the Black Swan Method as, as a late night FM DJ. Mm-hmm. And I got off the first call and, and the people that were supervising me were like, wow, your tone of voice is great. That was fantastic. And I remember thinking like, wow, how do I, I, I. I got to, I got to do it again. Cause I have no idea what happened. And so then I began, I learned there that the impact of the tone of voice was really important. And then I just, I thought, wow, this is a superpower. Like I could, I can begin to impact. And so then I just started looking for it and I studied it and I've had fun with it. Like, for example, Chris rock. Yeah. Like if you were to read Chris Rock's routine in yeah. a monotone, yes, monotone voice, you he wouldn't be funny at all. Right. And it's delivery. Or um uh another guy, another comedian, I think his last name is Black. I can't I you know, my son is a big fan of his. But um you know, lies a lot of comedians, it's it's total delivery. Lewis Black, Lewis Black is hysterical mm-hmm. just based on his delivery. And so then I started noticing that. And then like, I got, I got, I got a shortest attention span. So I figure in projection bias, when I started talking to groups, when I was teaching for the FBI, I figured like these dudes, their attention span, if if it's twice as long as mine, it's still short. I'm going to have to do everything I can to keep people's attention, which is varying my tone of voice. Mm -hmm. And everybody's got a lot of thoughts in their head. So yeah, I, I, w- I work at it a lot. I studied a lot. I, I pay attention to the people who keep my attention. And then I'm like, how did, how did they do that? What, what did they do? If you've got information to communicate and you want it to land, you've got to study tone of voice. And what about the folks who just are unaware of how sharp their tone sometimes is do you just as a communicator you just go hey they don't get it or do you call attention to it Uh, there are people who i know are very tone sensitive they can interpret so much others you could yell at them and they're just looking at the content but is do you think it's unawareness chris where they just don't get that their tone is sharp or are they intentionally doing what what are your thoughts on that i think it's principally on awareness um and people people who have the worst tone of voice are the natural assertives I mean, and I have been told if I'm in my natural assertive style, I literally had a hostage negotiator say to me once, dealing with you is like getting hit in the face with a brick. And making assertives especially aware 
that their tone of voice is actually counterproductive. Like, are you trying to make me not want to deal with you? You know, and counterproductive in one way, because you could say to an assertive, are you trying to offend me? And assertive might be like, well, if that gets a point across, then yes, I am. But if you say to an assertive, are you trying to get me to not cooperate with you? Well, the assertive has got that assertive voice because they're trying to get cooperation. So now their tone of voice is working against them instead of helping them make their point. So when you're pointing this stuff out, to assertives are probably the first worst. Interestingly enough, the analytical type, you know, if, if, if we're teaching you the black swan method, you're going to find that you, we believe there are three types and that it's a global phenomenon. We found these three types in China. We found them in Africa. We found them in Latin America. Fight, flight, make friends. The flight type is a very analytical person. They're close to the late night FM DJ voice, but they come off as distant and cold. And they figure that th since they're not distant and cold, and they're not, some of the warmest people I know are highly analytical. They think, well, that's your misinterpretation, and I'm not responsible for your misinterpretation. So getting them to grasp that in a, in a completely separate way or even observing it, like the agent of my book, Steve Ross, phenomenal guy, um, very analytical dude. So the first time that we sit down, you know, I, I hit him with an observation of his tone of voice. And I'd say, you really guard it. Which is how an analyst comes off. And he was kind of like, oh, uh, and caught him off guard. Because when you, when you read someone, we refer to that as a cold read. You may well catch them off guard. You may suddenly be behind their defenses which, and you have to be very gentle because if you get behind somebody's defenses quickly, they're going to feel defenseless and they may push back. And so when I saw him look kind of startled, I said, well, no, no, as a matter of fact, you know, I think that's a great, I think that's a great attribute in, in the position that you're in. I think it would really help you a lot in your profession. So we continue to talk and I, I'm there with a, another guy and, Less than two minutes later, Steve starts laying out all he'd been through in his personal life over the previous year. And he's like, you know, this may have been one of, my, one of the hardest times in my personal life, my entire life. Now, understand that he's laying stuff out to me two minutes into meeting him that I guarantee you that the majority of his coworkers, if they knew something was wrong at all, they didn't know what it was. And this, this is kind of the power of these verbal observations on tone of voice, elements of what we would call tactical empathy in a black swan method, how quickly you can establish a rapport with someone and also that they feel okay about it. And it's very counterintuitive to mo what most people think, but Tactical empathy accelerates business deals. And Steve and I have been in a trusted relationship since that moment seven years ago. And I got there within five minutes of meeting him. And I will tell you also, when he went out on his own, 
to start his own agency, I was one of the first people he told. So I appreciate being able to establish relationships with people that quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it kind of dovetails into what I wanted to talk about next and it's the tactical empathy piece. And, um, you know, read it a few times in your book, listened to it on Audible as well. And I, I think that, you know, that's the, that's the bread and butter of a lot of the stuff that you teach. And I think the first thing that people need to realize, and I heard you on another podcast with Lewis Howes talk about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And I think that lays the right. foundation. Could you explain how you view those differently and then dive into tactical empathy? Yeah, you know, the hostage negotiator's empathy, the black swan method empathy. It's not agreement. It's not compassion. It's not sympathy. It's a compassionate thing to do. But it's not compassionate. And true compassion, the first step is empathy. But there's some real fine lines to be drawn there. And in today's vernacular, you know, empathy and sympathy are the same thing. Like if I have empathy for you, uh, means I'm on your side. I agree with you. You know, way back when on the suicide hotline, they said empathy. It's not climbing in the quicksand with them. And if they're in the quicksand, you ain't doing them any good by climbing into the quicksand with them because you want to feel like you got common ground or I feel what you're feeling. I feel your pain. That ain't helping anybody. So that was my original starting point. And then we defined it the same way in the FBI. And then Bob Manukin wrote a book called uh, Beyond Winning. He's a he-, he was the head of the program on negotiation at Harvard. And he said empathy is not sympathy. It's not agreement. It's not liking the other side. It's just completely capturing their perspective and articulating it back to them. And if you can identify, uh, identify that narrowly, then empathy becomes an unlimited skill. Like, I don't want to be confined to only have empathy with someone that I agree with or someone that I share common ground with or someone that I have compassion for. Like you as John Q. Citizen pay me as previously as Chris Voss, FBI agent, because if Al Qaeda grabs you, you want me to use empathy to save your life, which means I can't be in agreement with a religious terrorist who's going to kill an innocent person. I've got to establish a working relationship to get him to let the hostage go and agree to letting the hostage go via this thing called empathy. And in that narrow definition, then it becomes this unlimited skill. And then it's ridiculously powerful. Then you don't need common ground. Let's go back to my Steve Ross story. Steve Ross, a New York guy. I, you know, I, I don't know where he's grown up. I grew up in Iowa. You know, we completely different backgrounds, different religion. Uh, I think Steve's Jewish. I'm not 100% sure. He doesn't send me Christmas cards, but he sends me New Year's cards. <laughs> you know, so like if I'm looking for common ground with Steve Ross, I got to sit down with this dude. We may need to talk for 20 minutes, half an hour, 90 minutes before I find something in common. Instead, I'm using empathy and we got to relate a working relationship that's bonded that inside of two minutes. So I, I don't rely on the typical you know, common ground stuff or the sympathy or the compassion and empathy just becomes this accelerator of relationships. And it also helps you get to the that's right moment a much faster. Talk to us a little bit about the 
That's right. Moment. One of my favorite stories of yours is about your son uh, who is uh, in football and uh, DJ is a, a football player in college as well. Maybe walk yeah. our listeners through that adjustment. And we go back to the, the thumb and the index finger where he had, right. he had to make that, but he, he, he wasn't making the connection. Well, D, DJ, I, you know, you look back in those days when you were playing football, you know, the only person more annoying than your coach was your father, who was also coaching you, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and my son, Brandon, now, who's, who's a president of the company, I mean, he's mastered the Black Swan method. He's our, he's our best negotiator. We were, in a, we were in a negotiation yesterday, very high stakes negotiation. I was his wingman. He led and, and he blew me away with the, you know, the, how, even how we're creating a black swan method. But back when he's playing football, he's a lineman and they moved him to linebacker, you know, and linemen, you know, linemen are predictable human beings. They want to hit, they want to hit everything that's in front of them. I mean, you know, they make mountain goats look shy because they want to put the head down and hit. You know, a linebacker's job is to not get a linebacker's only got to hit one guy, the person with the ball, but he's got to duck and dodge all these other people. And, you know, Brandon lineman getting out of way of somebody that hit you was unmanly. And, but his coach is like, boss, you got to play off the blocks. You got to play off the blocks. And he's not listening. You know, he was, he was the, uh, the response was always, you know, the kiss of death. You're right. If somebody's telling you you're right, they're trying to get you to shut up and leave them alone. And his coach would tell him playoff blocks, and he'd say, "You're right, coach," and he wouldn't do it. And then I'd I'd be yelling at him like, "Well, you know, what are you doing? You know, you play off the blocks like your coach said." You're right, Dad. <laughs> you know, which is like, shut the heck up. You know, <laughs> I don't want to hear it anymore. And finally, one day, I'm like, "What is going through this guy's mind?" And then I thought, from his perspective, playing off a block, dodging a hit is cowardly it's unmanly and i pull him off to the side one day and i said you know you're not you're not playing off blocks because you feel it makes you look like less of a man you feel getting out of the way of somebody who's trying to hit you makes you cowardly and, he, and i kind of put his head down and he looked at me and said that's right and he started playing off blocks the next day and I will tell you, the first block that he dodged to get out of the way, that moment is burned in his brain. If you guys had him on right now, <laughs> he could tell you that, you know, 20 years ago, that moment is etched in his brain and he will never forget the first time he, he, he did it. But it, it needed empathy to, to get him to change his behavior. It's so powerful. I've always vowed if I ever got a chance to speak with you, I would share this story. It was when your book first came out. We were on a cruise that went out of Fort Lauderdale. And so I've been listening to it on Audible. And we get into Fort Lauderdale on our way back to Minneapolis. Have you ever been to Fort Lauderdale Airport? It's not built for a lot of people. So there's crowds, people who don't travel very much. And it's a mess. People can't get through. And this one gate agent, bless her heart, she was very just professional. She was candid without being coarse, was organized. People, well, not everybody liked it, but she just had a way about her to separate the, the crowd, let people pass through. And fast forward a couple hours later, we're getting ready to, to get our tickets to board the plane. And my daughter and her friend had been separate. So good old dad, I have to go resolve this issue. So we get in line and the person in front of me is letting the same gate agent have it because he had some separation in his family as well. 
He's yelling at her. She said, I can't do anything about it. Now I'm next. So I've got Chris Voss kind of in my head and I walk up with a smile and I'm like, that was a little bit rough, huh? And she kind of goes, it was. And I said, I just want to tell you the way that you handled those folks in the lobby area was unbelievable. I've been traveling for 25 years. You were, you were candid without being coarse. I know they didn't get that, but when the evaluation comes, I just want to get your name so that I can share with the company how good of a job you did. And she shared her name and she looked at me while she didn't say it. It was the, that's right. And then I just went on to say, look, my daughter and her friend were separate. Can you do anything about it? Now, keep in mind, the person in front of me had the same request denied. And she said, let me see what I can do. She called me back 10 minutes later, Chris. Not only did she have those two sitting side by side, she printed off two additional passes, seats 3A and 3B. We were sitting in the back. We were 3A and 3B. And I know for a fact there were people who walked by us as they were going to coach who were at a higher status than I was or my wife, but there was the tactical empathy. You get me. And without me even asking, my goal is not to get up in first class. I wasn't going to say no to it, but there was this chemistry between the two of us. And she was, I want to do something for you. Yeah. Nice. You know, a couple of things I like to say about that, because I love that. And what might slip by people also is, some of the sequencing and one of the rules for life. Like one of them is never be mean to somebody who could hurt you by doing nothing. <laughs> you know, airline person like, ah, you know, there's nothing I can do. I can't help you. I don't have the power. And, and the people in the airlines, the amount of influence and power they have is phenomenal. It's whether or not they feel like it. But also you started out with what in a black swan method, we'd call a cold read, which is a comment sort of meant to simply recognize a negative and that's the best way to dissipate it. Just recognize it, not denying it, you know, not, not, you know, you don't get rid of the elephant in a room by pretending the elephant isn't there or saying it isn't there. Just as the recognition of the negative because people's wiring, the default wiring, the default human nature wiring, even if she hadn't been yelled at is to be negative. Uh, they've mapped it out. You know, everybody's heard of this thing called the amygdala, the amygdala hijack, you know, the reptilian brain. Three quarters of the real estate in the amygdala is for negative emotion. If you haven't been yelled at <laughs> and you saying something as interesting as innocent and innocuous as that was rough is just a verbal observation, verbal recognition. But the sequencing is you've got to go there first before you go to the positive. Like if you'd have gone into the complimentary, true and complimentary, compliments that are lies or are, 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 you know, sycophants, you know, boot licking, that, that's, it's not advised, but a compliment that's true. And all you did was say things which were true and complimentary after you took a sniper shot on that negative that was in a room. If you hadn't taken that sniper shot on that verbal observation first, the residue of that negative encounter would have been ringing in her ears and still interfering with her thinking process. She wouldn't have been able to appreciate as fully 
the complimentary and true things that you were saying, because that still would have been clouding her mind from the, the, uh, the previous experience. And all you did was make one comment, you know, that was rough. That in and of itself is a beautiful sequencing. And then bang, she starts working a magic because she felt like it. Nice, nice job. It was fun. It just, it just goes to show that what you're doing with, with what you're sharing is not manipulation. It's, it's connection. And when you yes. connect with people, they want to go out of their way to, to, to help you when they feel manipulated, like you're, you're giving me these choices and, it's, and you're, you're trying to put me into a box. Now I feel like you're pushing versus being on the same side of the table. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And, and with the application of empathy and a connection that you're talking about now, bang, you're on the same side of the table. Makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Another thing we talked about in your book, and I, I find it so interesting. I love to learn more about it is this, the idea of labeling the emotion. Uh, you talk about, you know, and I think the cool thing about this, Chris, I think you would agree is that it's not just a hostage negotiation. This is with marriage. This is with uh, just people you interact with every day for the listeners that haven't yet read the book. Can we talk a little bit about why it's important to label, not label what that looks like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so innocent and, and, uh, the simplest way is the best, you know, it sounds like you sound like it seems like it feels like you seem like, you know, it's a verbal observation of an emotional dynamic in a moment. And, you know, we tried calling it when, when we took the hostage negotiation skills and we built the black swan method and hostage negotiations called emotional labeling. And we just, in a black swan method, we just call it labeling. And we tried to call it a bunch of other things. And we, you know, the simplest name was the most descriptive. Now, why is it helpful? Well, again, this negativity thing that we we're talking about, and this, this brain science experiment, this neuroscience experiment has been duplicated a number of times. And it's always, it's always come out the same. First time I read about it was in a book called The Upward Spiral. They put people in fMRIs where they could watch the electrical activity move through their brain, functional magnetic resonance imaging device. Watch the electricity move in your brain. They show people a photograph that induces a negative emotion. You know, I don't know what the photographs were. You know, it could have been a puppy in the rain. You know, it could have been a little old lady on the street, homeless. You know, who, who knows? But they knew that the, uh, the photograph would induce a negative emotion. Show them the picture and watch that part of the amygdala that I talked about earlier light up. Mm -hmm. The three quarters that's been identified as where uh, emotional negative emotions are generated. And then they say, what are you feeling? Simply label the feeling in the moment. Every single time the person labeled the negative, not some of the time, not half the time, every time the electrical activity in the amygdala diminished. Every time, 1,000% of the time. Now, the caveat is it the degree of diminishment varies. Sometimes you might label a negative emotion and it only goes down by 1%. Sometimes you label it and it goes all the way down. Occasionally, a, a label of a negative can have an imperceivable impact. It still had the impact. You just need more. The principal issue was 
this thing that you asked me about a moment ago, these labels, especially the labels of negatives, not the denials, but the labels work every time. How does this impact us in interactions? What you might want to say, what you might want to deny, what's your gut instinct saying like, look, I don't want to seem greedy here. I don't want it to seem like I'm pushing you. I don't want to seem disrespectful. The two millimeter shift is to go from the denial to the label. Like I'm probably going to seem disrespectful. I'm sure this is going to seem like I'm pushing you. I'm sure it's going to seem like I'm greedy. We've never had that backfire on us ever, ever, ever. Um, people are horrified that they say that your reaction is going to be, well, I didn't think you were going to be greedy, but now that you just mentioned it, I do. You are probably greedy. We ain't having that happen. Not only that, we know that it inoculates people from negatives. Like if I get something that I know you're going to react negatively to, again, which means if I know you're going to react negatively, means that negative is not there. If I'm getting ready to say something that it's going to make me seem greedy, I'm going to say, this is going to make me seem greedy. And I'm going to let that sink in for about the count of three, no more. And then I'm going to say it. What's your reaction consistently on the other side? It wasn't. I thought it was going to be worse. Yeah, I thought it was going to be worse. I appreciate that you're being honest. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's a superpower. You know, that's it's the original Star Wars. These are not the droids you were looking for. <laughs> and I think what's cool is sometimes even if you're not exactly right on the label, by at least putting some kind of label on it, they may, they may correct you on that. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up because this whole correction thing, that's a superpower too. The willingness to be corrected. A lot of people are horrified of being corrected because it makes them feel bad. It makes them embarrassed. You know, I don't want to be corrected. I don't want to look like I'm wrong. Why? Because it bothers you. But empathy is not about you. What happens when somebody corrects you? They're stepping to your side. Mm -hmm. It's a dynamic that you were talking about earlier. Like, how do you get people on your side of the table? Well, to correct someone is to help them. That means that they're no longer an adversary. Now, they may feel superior to you. And that's a secondary issue, depending upon whether or not you want to exploit it or smooth it out. It's, it's actually usually better to exploit it. But they're on your side of the table the minute they correct you to start with. That's the first advantage. The second advantage is it's shocking what people will candidly tell you when they're correcting you. I mean stunning. You can get people to share stuff with you. They've probably been told not to share. But the act of correcting feels so good that they're going to blurt it out anyway because it feels so good to correct. We've had people in business negotiations constantly get the other side to give up information that was absolutely proprietary, but it came out in a correction <laughs> and they didn't regret it. Yeah. Oh, that's something, man. Another thing that they think is super special when you think about negotiating, Chris, I think a lot of people think about how can I get other people on my side? How can I get them to say yes, whether it's a business deal or, or in, a, in a gym if they're trying to sell a membership per se, but you really flipped that model and it turned my head and it you know, showed me a totally different way of thinking. And I think it's brilliant because you enlighten our listeners on why we're not really looking for yes. We should rather be looking for the word no. Right. Yeah. Well, yes is what we say to get people off our back. You know, people that are driving for a yes, you want to be left alone. You say yes, or you say that's right, and, and they go away. And so you're not really, yes is never a solid answer. 
It, it just isn't. Now, the crazy thing, and, and first of all, we love hearing yes, but nobody likes saying it, which is, it, it's nuts. Like if uh, any of your listeners, what do you feel like if you pick up the phone and the other side says, have you got a few minutes to talk? If yes was such a great word to say, you'd scream out, yes, thank God you called. But when somebody says, have you got a few minutes to talk? You're like, ah, I don't know. How long is a few minutes? What do you want to talk about? Where's this going? What am I letting myself in for if I say yes? Completely different side of the coin, uh, depending upon which end of yes you're on. Now, as much anxiety as yes induces, no has a complete opposite effect. Like people have conditioned themselves over and over again that every time they say no, they protected themselves. I mean, it's almost a Pavlov's dog response. Stimulus and response. Say no, you're protected. Say no, you're protected. Say no, you're protected. So the people don't even think about what they're saying no to. They just say no and they feel great and protected, which is how you want somebody to feel when you're trying to establish a relationship. Interacting with you makes them feel protected. They don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel in a moment. Something about interacting with you makes them feel safe and protected. They can't put their finger on why. It's because you said no. You feel good when you say no. And so it makes no sense, but you switch from do you agree to do you disagree? You switch from would you like to do this? Are you against doing this? Hmm. You know, if you're selling gym memberships, yeah. would, you like being would you like to be healthier? That's a trap question. <laughs> Are you against being healthier? No. It makes no sense mm -hmm. that are you against being healthier would get you a better close rate. Have you given up on being the healthiest you could possibly be? Mm -hmm. um, is it a bad idea to be healthier? Is it a bad idea to feel better every day? And, and especially when it comes to health, I mean, you guys have heard all, all the silliest arguments about not being healthy. I mean, I, a, a brilliant businessman who's literally worth a billion dollars, everybody respects this guy's intellect. We were in a, on a Zoom call recently, and, he, and his analysis for not taking better care of himself was, if I spend a year and a half working out so I live another six months, that's a waste of my time. Hmm. Well, you know... It, you don't really work out for a year and a half to live six more months. You work out for a year and a half because every moment in between you felt better. The entire quality of every moment you lived was at a higher level. You got more done. You were happier. You had better personal relationships. You spent less money on food because to try to keep yourself it's very expensive to be overweight it costs a lot mm -hmm. so it was but he's got this analysis in his brain that's somebody well would you like to be would you like to live for would you like to live longer well not if it takes me longer to live longer but that was a yes trap question but to get somebody's attention you get out of yes because no is it makes them feel safe and if they felt safe they'll actually listen to you better and if you're making a legitimate point about that, not just how much longer they're going to live, but the intervening quality of life 
on the years that they do have left on the planet, you need them to listen to that. Mm-hmm. So you got to take an approach that nobody else takes. Yeah. It's a total shift in mindset, isn't it? It's just a different way of thinking. Most people are taught to get the yeses, whether it's a sales call or anything else, you know, along those lines. Chris, we're wrapping up here on time. So I want to just get to the last couple of questions here. And one of the things I'm curious about from the negotiation standpoint is, are there any any words, Chris, we go back to kind of the words, are there any words that you're trying to really avoid in a high pressure situation? And then, you know, converse there, are there some words that you really like to lean on when you're talking to a a hostage negotiator, an opponent on the the other side? Yeah, well, you know, it's not words that we avoid, but we're careful of the context. Like fair is fair is the F word. (laughs) Like, I, I, you know, I, we, we don't say I've given you a fair proposal. Okay. Um, there's that's I've just uh, you know which I've accused you of being unfair if you don't react to it and it's manipulation it's not connection I, I love that analogy before that observation so I will say look I I want to make sure you feel you feel treated fairly and if there's any point in time you feel I'm not treating you fairly I want you to stop me so I can go back and address it that's a completely different way of navigating the F word fair fair comes up in every conversation it's shocking as soon as you start saying it. So we're, we're careful about it. Um, that's the main thing that we're, we're cautious about. You know, uh, I, I try to, I try to let you speak first because I'm in an information gathering mode. So I, I don't start out by making my pitch. I got to find out, you know, what about my pitch matters to you? Otherwise I'm shooting in the dark and I'm probably just wasting my time. Yeah, I think a lot of it too comes back to just listening and like you said, get, gathering the information and not speaking over somebody, which in a lot of ways, I think uh, for some people that can be a very difficult task uh, just to be able to be a better listener than, than speaker. I heard you also say one time too on a podcast, Chris, that you really try to avoid saying it's a win-win situation. Oh, why, God, why, do you, yeah. why do you avoid that? <laughs> well, I know that if um, uh, I want you to feel that, it, that you've won. But I know from practical experience that the person who's saying win-win to me, especially early on, is trying to pick my pocket. And that's a great indicator. Like if you're like, look, we want to talk about this. We want to win. We want a win-win deal. I'm like, okay, this conversation is going to be over shortly because you're trying to rip me (laughs) off. And that being a behavior of the throat-cutting negotiator, then I will avoid the vernacular that the throat cutters use because if you haven't been burned yet by somebody using that term, you will be, <laughs> and you're going to remember it. Absolutely. Think about the person, Chris, as we wrap up here as the person driving the car, they're loving this negotiating stuff. And for me, as I was introduced to you, I started to really be more aware of the conversations I was having with people and the tonality, the, the, the just everything that we're saying back and forth, the dialogue. If somebody's listening, they want to start to become a master negotiator. Let's just say they have one tip as they're driving to wherever they're going, Chris, what, what's one thing they could do to help work on and be more of a master negotiator? Well, you know, first of all, t- there's two things. First of all, let yourself get a, a better, just a little at a time. You know, the path to mastery will come to you very quickly if you look for just tiny incremental change. Like they're gone. Uh, the best coach on our team um, says, just get one degree better today. Just one degree better. So look for just tiny little improvement and then start experimenting to see if you can hear people out first. 
you know, see how good you are at getting people to be fully heard out. Like initially, you let them go a little bit, then you're going to want to jump in. You know, it's going to be your habit. You're going to feel out of control if you're not talking. Get comfortable with hearing other people out, get there a little at a time. You'll find that you'll start making deals accidentally mm. without really even learning any of the black swan method or the black swan skills just by making those two moves. Very cool. Chris, thanks for taking the time, man. Uh, so we have never split the difference. What other uh, avenues can I point my listeners to if they want to hear more, or learn more from you? Well, the gateway to everything that the Black Swan team can do is really through the newsletter. It comes out, it's, comes out Tuesday mornings. It's short and sweet. It's complimentary. You know, I used free. I had a friend that used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. But more than the value of the fact that it's complimentary is it's actionable. comes out on Tuesday mornings, actionable, implementable, short, sweet, concise read. And it is the gateway to everything that the Black Swan team can do for you. Simplest way to subscribe is a text to sign up function. Send a message, Black Swan method, three separate words, spaces between the words, not cap sensitive. Send the message Black Swan Method to 33777. That's 33777. You'll get a text response asking for your email. It's the gateway. We got a ton of free stuff that we can share with you to raise the level of your game. The Black Swan team will meet you where you are and will help you elevate your game. Very cool. Chris, that was fun, man. Thanks for taking the time. Your book's incredible. I'm excited to share this. Um, you guys, if you enjoyed the show, make sure to uh, post on your Instagram. See, uh, I, I'm curious. What did you guys get out of the show? Give me some feedback. Uh, let me know what you're working on with your master negotiation path. Uh, guys, we'll see you guys next week for another episode on the My Fit Podcast. Take care.